Take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 26, please. This is the word of the Lord. It's written for you. And that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. And the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You've enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress, they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. The earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would give life and light to our hearts. We praise you. Your scriptures are perfect. We readily acknowledge we're not. Uh, In fact, oftentimes our minds are confused and passages like this stretch them. Oh, Lord, would you show kindness and help, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. 
What makes the Bible the Bible? It's an important question, actually, one that um, the longer you've been in the church, probably the less you've ever actually answered it, probably. What makes the Bible the Bible? What makes it reliable and trustworthy? What makes it a dependable uh, book to build your entire life around? It's a question and answer that's in our catechism addressed or in the confession addressed, and a short version of it is the thing that makes the Bible the Bible is that it's God's Word. He wrote it. And as a result, it bears his character. God is true, therefore his word is true. God is abiding, his word is abiding. God is good, his word is good. God is love, his word is loving. And it's a reflection of his character. But it's to be believed and rested upon based upon who he, what he is, who he is, and what the scriptures are, his word written. But I love how even in the Westminster Standards, it addresses there's more to it than just that. It is to be believed, the Bible, because it is God's Word, but there are other things we may appreciate. The majesty of its style. I love that phrase. Right? That you have 66 books, a bunch of different human authors, one divine author so that it is one book, and you have all of the uh, complicated relationships of the various authors and the various books and the way the story is developed from start to finish, the true history of what God has done. It's magnificent how it fits together. The most sophisticated, complex, and beautiful piece of literature ever written anywhere, bar none. I think, though, one of the perhaps parts that doesn't get talked about quite enough, I appreciate about the Bible, is how well it describes our own experience when we're willing to put in the effort to actually understand it. Now, again, sometimes we don't actually try. (laughs) Fair enough. We don't try, and that's on us because we actually haven't put out any effort, any energy to see how it might speak to our lives. But if we're willing to actually put in the effort to understand what the Bible is saying, to understand what it means, it really is wonderfully impressive as to how well it describes the human experience. I think chapter 26 is one of those chapters that uh, you read, honestly, probably most of us on first blush kind of went, yeah, this is one of those Old Testament chapters I don't understand. Maybe your your brain might have checked out around uh, verse 8 or 9. Um, maybe you kind of started having a hard time paying attention after that. Maybe it checked back in in verses 17 and 18 where the pregnant lady gives birth to wind, but maybe that's just because you thought it might be something that middle school boys would giggle at, um, perhaps. A passage like this is hard, but if we're actually willing to put in the effort, I think you might find that for many of us, it actually articulates so much of our daily experience and articulates so much of kind of our Christian experience as a whole. All right, the book of Isaiah, again, do your kind of big picture Bible teaching as well, is a book that is dealing with the sin of God's people. And they are a people that are still living in sin, they're continuing in sin, and they're not actually seeking the Lord and not attempting to honor him with their lives. Their leaders are corrupt, uh, the nation is corrupt, worship is corrupt, it's a mess. And so you have this kind of reoccurring refrain coming of the Lord is going to destroy all of God's enemies. But in doing so, the Lord's also going to sanctify and perfect his people. And that that might be difficult at times. And 
challenging. And cycle number one, destroying the enemies of God. Cycle number two, destroying the enemies of God, but be aware, people of God. Now we're into this third kind of cycle of, of, of declarations, of prescriptions, of prophecies. Chapters 24 through 27 really are kind of describing the end times, though not in the standard apocalyptic genre. It's talking about the end. The end of the end. And I love how in chapter 25 we had this description of the Lord kind of setting this this beautiful feast for his people and enjoying them and rejoicing with them. But then even verse 7 and 8, 8 is the one that we love so much, so many of us. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. For so many of us, this articulates kind of our, our daily existence as we contemplate kind of going about the busyness of our week, the busyness of our, our days, of our lives. It's, it's a life that's spent longing for death to be defeated longing for sadness to be defeated, longing for shame to be defeated. I mean, you think about so many of us, that that describes our daily existence, doesn't it? So much of our energy is spent wrestling with the grief of death, grief in general, or the debilitating shame that tells us that we're, we're not good enough, which we're not, and the judgment that comes with it. The idea of having those things taken away is like life-altering in in hope. Honestly, some of us are, are struggles on a daily basis because we don't ever think about that. Some of us, our weeks are miserable, our minds are miserable, our hearts are miserable, our attitudes are miserable, largely because we don't spend enough time and energy and effort thinking about that. That God is going to remedy these things. But as we get to chapter 26, it's really the response to that. What is our response? What is the Christian response to what God will do at the end of time? What's the Christian response to the end supposed to be? What's the Christian response to this reality that death will be defeated, excuse me, that sadness will be defeated, that shame will be defeated? And it starts where we might expect, verses 1 through 6. It's a happy song. In that day, in this end times day, in this end of uh, creation as we know it, this created order, in that day, this is the song that will be sung amongst the people of God in the land of Judah. And it's this wonderful kind of uh, victory song proclaiming what God has done. He's defended us against our enemies. Look, we have a strong city, yay. Now, for those of us that live in a culture that hasn't been invaded, you know, this nation's not been invaded in kind of a really long time. We don't think about the benefit of having a strong city, but that would mean you could sleep really well at night. If you know that no army can come in, no, no bandits can come in, no enemies can come into the city, you can sleep safely at night. For some of you, it's the difference between sleeping with your doors locked when you go to bed versus leaving your doors wide open and just trusting no one comes in. 
right? If I had to sleep with all my doors open, all my windows open, I'm probably not going to rest quite so well, knowing that I have to protect my kids, my my wife here. Uh, No, God's created a strong city. He's set up a salvation, all of its might, its walls, its bulwarks. And in doing so, even, he's opened it and invited his people in so that those that are his people that are filled with faith, the righteous may enter into his city and enjoy all of the benefits of his salvation. Now, that's what a song, right? What's going to happen at the end? We will have all of the benefits of God's salvation. And that's a thing I can be excited about. Verse 3, explaining what God has done. You've you've kept us in peace, peace, in, in the peaceful peace, the perfect peace. For the person whose mind is fixed on you, you've, you've not just protected our bodies in this city, you've protected our minds by giving us things to believe, your character to trust in, a knowledge of you, the triune God, even proof in your son, Jesus Christ, that he lived, died on the cross, was raised and ascended, that I have a guarantee of my salvation because Christ has accomplished it. You keep me in perfect peace. You have and you will. Verse 4, that I'm commanded this imperative, I should trust God because this, the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, the one who has promised on his own name, on his own character, he is an everlasting rock that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken. And then verses 5 and 6, the part that kind of the petty side of us gets excited about, all of our enemies are destroyed. All of those enemies that are arrayed against us that have actually sought our downfall, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some of us, actually, you have enemies that you could name by name. Some of you don't have that, and that's okay. Not everybody's entitled to a nemesis. That's all right. It's not like the movies. But they're destroyed. And in fact, actually brought so low that even the poor themselves are able to trample on them. And and right, this right here, verses one through six, is a happy song. This is the song about the kind of life that we would love to have. Safe. It's including the the friends and family that are like-minded that the Lord has brought along that we share perfect peace. Now again, remembering your biblical definition of peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the right ordering of things, that things function the way they're supposed to, that God is present and our enemies have been defeated. That is wonderful. That's really the description of what God does for his people. And I love that. Because kind of intuitively, many of us who've kind of come to faith and know the Lord Jesus, we can go, yeah, I already feel that, don't I? There are so many days where I feel that perfect peace, where I can say, look, I know the Lord's working in me and he's, he's changing my heart and he's ordering it in a way that as I rest upon him, as my mind is built upon his word, as my heart is submissive to him, I, I, I understand the peace. I feel it. What do I have to fear? The Lord is on my side. And some of us know those moments where we can say, you know, verse 4 has been my claim that as the world has gone crazy around me, the one sure rock that I can stand upon is the Lord God himself. 
If you've walked with Jesus for any lengthy period of time, many of these verses you should be able to attest to, not just because they are in the Bible, which would be enough, but also experientially. If you've walked with Jesus for a while, you should be able to, at some point, articulate these verses as your experience. The problem is, we're this side of the second coming. <laughs> and so it's not our only experience. You know, have, if you've walked with Jesus for a while, have you had experiences where your enemies were brought low? Where your enemies were destroyed? Where your enemies were removed from the circumstances and situations? Yeah. I mean, you should. You should have seen that. He does that. Sometimes, but sometimes he doesn't. And in fact, actually, sometimes they seem to flourish over us for a season. Sometimes it looks like the bad guys are winning. Sometimes our experience doesn't match these first six verses. In fact, actually, that's really where this chapter is going to end. It doesn't stop there, though, actually, as it goes to describe the good parts. Verses 1 through 6 explain uh, the positives of the end, the song of salvation, the song of joy. But Isaiah then continues in a couple of parts in the chapter here to explain his own personal experience of salvation, what the Lord has done for him personally. Look at verses uh, 7 through 9. This is a fun one to think about. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous and the path uh, are of your judgments. Lord, we wait for you. Interestingly, these verses, what Isaiah begins to describe is one of the benefits of salvation is that even now already, this side of the second coming, the Lord is making our lives easier. He's smoothing our paths. He's, He's making it so that we're able to grow in godliness, that we're able to walk in Him. Now, did I say He makes our lives easy? No, I I did not say that. I did not say that. But he makes them easier. And there's a reoccurring theme all throughout the Scriptures. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But as we walk with God, he smooths our paths. He makes it an easier life because he loves us and protects us and cares for us. In fact, even verses 12 through 15, you get to see that he's brought blessing to the nation, brought blessing to his individual saints. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Again, this rightly ordering of the world around us. Indeed, you have done for us all our works. You've done it for us. Verse 13, other lords ruled over us, but no, you're the one that we worship. Why? Because those other gods are dead, those other rulers are dead, but instead, verse 15, you have given blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It's really intriguing that you get to see Isaiah proclaiming, the Lord has defended us against our enemies. The Lord has smoothed our paths The Lord has brought blessing and peace already. 
Now, this is so interesting to me because this is a section of the book that is about the end times, and yet all of this chapter is about you've already defeated our enemies. You've already smoothed our paths. You have already brought blessing and peace, and this is where, again, I love the Bible. As we walk with Jesus, we have good days where that's easy for us to be able to say, yeah, actually, that's true. Yeah, absolutely, that's true. For those of you that were converted later in life, you know the Lord has indeed smoothed your paths because you remember what it was like to walk a life apart from Christ and apart from the Bible. It's awful. It's miserable and amazing how once you begin to obey the Lord and walk with him and he fights for you and defends you, how it doesn't get easiest, but it does get easier. There's a problem, though, is that not every day is that day. Realistically, not every day is the day where I'm able to sing verses one through six. Not every day is the day where I'm able to praise the Lord for verse 12. Days where you've ordained peace for us. Some days are the days where we are ordained sorrow or chaos or difficulty. Not every day is the day where we are ordained blessing. The enlargement of our territory some days are days of loss. And I love how really verses 10 and 11 16 through 18, and then 19 through 21 kind of give us three separate kind of understandings as to how to kind of approach the, 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 the already not yet tension of the text. You had these three blessings that the Lord is doing and will do, defend us against all enemies, smooth our paths, bring blessing and peace. But there's reasons, actually, why that's not fully apprehended yet. Verses 10 and 11. This is so interesting. Some can't see it yet. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. This kind of if-then thing of like, if, if he's allowed to continue in such a way, then he'll never see His eyes will never be opened, he'll never be changed. And in fact, verse 11 is then kind of the profound negative assessment of Israel in the time in which Isaiah is writing, oh Lord, your hand is lifted up. These people just don't see it. This is actually going back to referencing his original call to ministry. Remember, the Lord said, who will go for us? Isaiah's like, I'll go. The Lord's like, great. Now here's what your ministry is gonna be. You're gonna preach and nobody's gonna listen. And you're going to call them to repentance and nobody's going to repent. And you're going to encourage them to walk with God and nobody's going to do it. And it's going to be just hard heart after hard heart after hard heart. And verse 11 is that assessment. Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they don't see it. But interesting, look at the appeal that he gives. But let them see. Let them see your zeal. Let them see. Open their eyes. Let them see. Now, if they don't, then you get the second clause. If they're not able to see and be changed, then let the fire consume them. I think it's intriguing that he's already explaining kind of part of the tension that we feel in God's promises. 
God's promises are delivered. They're they're made in the declarative. The Lord says it will be so. It will be this way. And, And the tension that we feel partially is answered, I think, is so interesting. Is that in some cases, it's just because eyes haven't been opened yet. AKA, it's not done yet. We're, we're just not patient enough. The story isn't finished enough. We're, we're still too far early in the novel, so to speak. It's, uh, for some of us, you, you pick up those, uh, you, your, your summer novel as you're going to read this summer, as you take a break or whatever, you go to the beach or whatever you're going to do, and you get 100 pages into it, and some of you are that dreadful kind of reader that 100 pages in, you just can't wait So you flip to five pages from the end and read the final five. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? What is wrong with you people? Some of you do it, and you know you do. You deny it. Nobody's going to say they do that after church, but you know you do. But in essence, realistically, there's an element of that's what we're doing with our Christianity. We're 100 pages into the novel, and we're saying, God, I can't wait. i got to go to the end. You've given me all of these promises of my enemies being defeated, of me having smooth paths and an easy life, of me having the peace and blessing, of me, if we go back to the previous chapter, having victory over death, of me having victory over sadness, of me having victory over shame. I'm ready to go to the end. I'm ready. I want that right now. You're on page 100. And friends, for most of us, it's not a 101-page book. Some of us it might be. But for most of us, it's not. Most of us, it's a four, five, six, seven, eight hundred 800-page book. You've got a ways to go. Our job is to be patient, to trust the Lord, to submit to Him. Now, I've I know there are parts of Christianity or some of us have grown up in parts of the evangelical movement that tells us that we can't acknowledge that tension, right? That you're not allowed to have struggles with that, that you you can't wrestle through those things, which is, one, dreadful theology. Uh, To tell people they can't struggle through the Scriptures is dreadful theology. Fairly certain the Bible says we're supposed to work out our faith with fear and trembling, fairly certain. Think about how many of the Psalms you're wrestling through that. But it's interesting that Isaiah himself wrestles through that. Verses 16 through 18, that's really where he he kind of comes to this. Lord, in distress your people, they've sought you. Poured out a whispered prayer when you're disciplined upon them. Some of us have done this, Lord. We're ready for the end. Like a pregnant woman who's crying out, she's ready to give birth, but when there's time to give birth to the baby, there's no baby. Thus, the give birth to wind is it's just empty. There's nothing. It was the ultimate anticlimactic experience. There's no benefit. We've accomplished nothing in the earth. We, we've, we've labored. Our, our energies haven't come to fruition yet. In fact, actually, I love the last two clauses. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Our experience, again, is still this side of the second coming. 
And as a result, the enemies still flourish for a season. And as a result, the deliverance isn't comprehensive for a season. And at the, you know, at, as a result, we don't have all of the peace and joy and fullness yet. It's not yet done. I love that. It's explaining my experience in Christianity. It's explaining yours. How we have that kind of tension in our minds between God's promises, which are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus, and the experience of struggle, which is real and true and serious, and both are taking place simultaneously. And I love that. Because realistically, saints, Christians, people of God, depending on which category you are, one of those two things is a thing that you need to remember. Either that God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus, or that the struggle is still real. Some of you currently are living such a happy life, filled with so many joys, so many gladnesses, so many wonders that it's easy to apprehend the promises of God and it's very difficult to understand our brothers and sisters that are so incredibly sad. In fact, actually, some of us have been in parts of the church where it said it's a sin to be sad. (sighs) Fairly certain that Jesus himself has been sad, so you're allowed to be over the right things. But for those of us that are in that happy category, those that understand the blessings of God that are kind of on the mountaintop, that are enjoying the benefits and the blessings of salvation, so much so that it's just gladness for us. It's our task as that grouping of people to learn to understand the grief that our, some of our brothers and sisters carry with them all the time. Right, some in our midst carry grief connected to physical ailments. Right? For those of you that are just loving life and high on the hog, please understand the physical cost, it costs some of our dear people to get into the building just on a Sunday morning. The toll they pay is huge. Or the emotional grief that people carry. Or the personal grief. The relational grief. The intellectual grief. Like, if, if you're in that category where you're the strong and the happy and the joyful and the glad, make it your mission to understand those that are not so that you may minister to them and care for them and watch over them. I will say just as personal testimony, I'm in this category. I'm one of those people that I wake up every day and eight out of 10 happy every day. Very rarely am I anything less than that. I'm just, by God's mercy, a happy person. And I will say one of the big things that pastoring in this place for 15 years, the Lord has done, 16 years, the Lord has done, is taught me that I need to have an appreciation for how other people hurt, just because I don't. To be able to understand the emotional struggle they go through, to understand the weight, to understand the tension, the difficulty. Just for me, it's easy to understand that the Lord is defending me, or in many cases is smoothing my paths or is giving blessing and peace. That For others, that, that might not be their experience, and it doesn't mean they're bad or wrong. This means it's not done yet. 
Their story isn't finished yet. We're on page 100 of the novel. To be tender towards our brothers and sisters. And really, you see, that's actually the application. For some of us, our mission needs to learn to be to learn to be tender, to be kind, to be understanding. It is intriguing, again, this is one of those things that sociologists are beginning to understand, is that our culture has more access to communication than ever before. And the interesting thing is the more communication we have, the less understood people feel and the less gentle we are toward our neighbor. Friends, if you're in that like kind of happy category, the promises of God are easy to understand. It needs to be your mission to understand with gentleness those that don't, don't carry that, that gladness. Likewise, I know there are some of you in the room, I've pastored long enough to know now, that wake up anywhere from a two out of 10 to a four out of 10 every day. Happiness seems so far away that it's a, it, might, it might as well not exist. That the sorrows that are described so often in the scriptures, the consequences of sin, they're so real to you that the promises of God just seem non-existent. Well, for you, I would actually present the opposite challenge. Your challenge is not to try to understand the, the glad people maybe to show patience toward them when they're too happy. But your mission is to labor, to believe that God is who he says he is. So that your sadness, so that your sorrow, so that your grief, so that your pain, so that your hurt does not become all-consuming. So it doesn't become blinding. So it doesn't become so comprehensive that it becomes definitive to who you are. It's increasingly common that we're watching in generations now that their pain is becoming the single biggest personality trait that they possess. Right? We're no longer being defined by our sense of humor or by, by our intellect or you know, by quick wit or things like that, but just by how we deal with our pain, and it's, oh, it's dreadful. Because really what we're supposed to be doing is together as the people of God, both sides, those that are unbearably happy and obnoxiously so, like me, and those that are maybe less so and grumpy, maybe perhaps a little Eeyore, like some of you, and everything in between, we are to be together laboring to encourage, to build up, and to strengthen. Because the interesting thing is Isaiah actually gives us the the change. I haven't gotten to those verses yet, but really what it is, is it's this tension that we live in between these promises that are yes and amen and will take place because Christ is victorious and these experiences that are real and difficult and sad and hurt and everything in between until verse 20. All right, everybody. This is my Michael translation. Time to hide. Let's go inside and lock the doors. 
Now that's in verse 20, that's what it is, right? Come, my people, enter your chambers. Quick, 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 quick. Come on in, shut the doors behind you. It's time to hide. Because the thing that changes that, that bifurcation, the thing that gets rid of the, uh, I feel one way, but God's promises are the other, the thing that kind of changes the, the dual nature of the church will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And the thing that will change that dual nature of the church, the dual nature of our experience is, in verse 20, you hide yourselves for a little while because the wrath of God is coming on, not us as the people of God, but coming on the created order itself. That the Lord is going to destroy the entirety of the created order. It's why we think about, you know, we teach our our children rightfully so, as God tells us to from Genesis, uh, that the rainbow in the sky tells us the Lord will never flood the world by water ever again. Yay, that's great. I don't have to worry about drowning in that way. He will, however, destroy the created order by fire. It will be burnt, it will be consumed, so that what we experience in the new heavens and new earth is not a one-to-one continuation of this. It's, it's where we miss, like, mess up so badly with when we think of the new heavens and new earth is what we're doing is we're trying to take this life and just port it into the new life but without sin. And it's like, no, no, it's not that. Because this created order is consumed. It's done away with. Now, there are parts of continuity, my body, your body, things like that. But the vast majority of it is a discontinuity. You don't take your dog with you. I know that's sad. You don't take your cat with you. Less sad. <laughs> but what happens in the new life to come is a new created order. I hope you all know this. I am actually a cat person. That's why I poke fun at them all the time. Right? What happens in the new world, the new life, is way better than what this life is able to contain. This created order is not able to contain the glories and beauties of what's coming. And interestingly, the, the, the operative factor, the point in time and history that changes it all, verse 21, behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more hide its slain. When the Lord shows up, the entire created order will bow before him as his wrath is poured out upon it in its entirety. And as a result, I'll change. So actually, there's a kind of maybe different application that we all need to be thinking about, whether you're one of the obnoxious happy people or maybe the little grumpy mopey people, that wherever we are in between those two extremes, All of us are living and laboring in light of a coming judgment for the created order itself. And I think perhaps that maybe does sometimes give a little bit of a sense of perspective that when we get angry with the traffic light that turns red just in time to catch us, that that traffic light's not going to exist at some point because the created order that it's part of won't exist either. 
And in fact, actually, the only thing that goes with us into that life are those that bear the image of God and the angels. And we have no business with the angels until judgment day, but we do with each other. And so our mission becomes, in many ways, to be those encouragements to one another. So for those that are in that valley of Baca, the the valley of tears, the valley of weeping, it's our mission to come alongside you and to encourage you and to strengthen you. We need you to tell us about that, though, so we can. And for those of you that are in that veil of tears, it's your mission to keep us grounded, to remind us that this life is not all that it is, that this life, as great as it is, is one that will pass away, and that we need to live in light of the coming wrath of God and the change that will take place. And together, as a church and everyone in between, we need to be busy, as Jude puts it, snatching them out of the fire. Those that, in verse 11, have not yet seen that it's coming. The judgment of God is indeed coming, and our task as a church, as best we can, is to try to snatch people from the fire so they don't have to undergo what we would never wish them to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even tricky passages like this one, may you give us a love for your church, a love for our neighbor, a love for Christ, and even a love for evangelism. We pray in Christ's name, amen.